Continuing to make our way through the book of Ephesians, we're actually getting towards the end, and we keep looking at uh, the God of reconciliation, who promises to uh, unite and heal things that are broken, clean things that are dirty, and really tonight, uh, the Apostle Paul, as you heard Molly read, he talks about marriage. And so what he's saying is that marriage is one of the grand visible displays that God unites things that used to be divided. And if you heard this, Paul actually calls marriage a mystery. And we've talked about this before, but a mystery in the book of Ephesians is not something that you, you know, have to go figure out. A mystery is something that until the coming of Jesus, we did not know and could not make sense of. Uh, Maybe... All right. Sorry about that. Um... And so, a mystery, I apologize for that, Uh, a mystery is something that we would never figure out, but when Jesus came, it's revealed. So what Paul is claiming about marriage is that the coming of Jesus revealed something about it that otherwise you would never know. And look, I'm very aware that the vast majority of this room is not married. I think I'm one of the only ones in here that is. But uh, the Bible still applies to you. Because, I think if you'll listen tonight, some of what Paul says about marriage will make sense to some of the wounds that you carry tonight. Because if you're growing up in a home uh, that, that had a broken marriage, some of tonight, I think, will uh, help you understand your fears of marriage. Others of you will help you place your longings for it. And others of you that don't, uh, that don't have longings for it, it'll, it'll help you in this as well. And so... I want to look at three things tonight. The purpose of marriage, 
the pattern of marriage and the power for it. Okay? Purpose, pattern, power. Look, there's a book by Tim Keller named, it's called The Meaning of Marriage. It's the best thing on marriage that I've read out there. Just a lot of this is that, okay? But you should still read it. It's better than what I have to say. Um, so first, the purpose. Okay, what is the purpose of marriage? This is actually an incredibly important uh, question. Because unless you know something's purpose, you cannot analyze whether it's good or bad. Correct? So, if I was to, um, if I was to take your iPhone, and I threw it into the fountain, and it sunk to the bottom, and I said, well, that's a bad phone. Because it's not a good flotation device. Your response would be, well, your response would be, I think you'd question some some of my sanity. But besides that, you would say, uh, that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to connect you to other people, to keep you up to date on the news, sometimes even so you can avoid other people and stare at a screen and not have to talk to them. That's its purpose, right? And so it's good if it does those things. It's bad if it doesn't. But it's not bad because it wasn't a flotation device. That's not its purpose. You've ruined it by trying to make it do that. And see, what is a good marriage? It depends on its purpose. And look, throughout history, cultures uh, have said different things. In ancient history, the purpose of marriage was mainly family building, economic advancement, and family needs, and family security. So if a marriage produced lots of children, it was a good marriage. If a marriage did not produce uh, children, it was bad. There was something wrong. Other times throughout culture, marriage has just been a way to, um, to try to bring peace between nations. So it's a good marriage if it does that. It's a bad marriage if, if there's division and war that continues. But today, it's interesting, what does contemporary culture consider the purpose of marriage? It's probably multifaceted, but here's what I think. Marriage boils down to this, your individual happiness and pleasure. That's it. That's its purpose. Therefore, if a marriage is making you happy... If it's satisfying you, it's good, no matter what it looks like. If it's disappointing, if it's hard, if it involves pain, it's bad. Okay? But what does Paul say in Ephesians 5 is the purpose of marriage? Ephesians 5, it really, again, it makes an astonishing claim. Because apart from Jesus, there's no way we would say this. Listen to the language, right? He said, the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24 is the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then verse 31 quotes the first marriage between Adam and Eve, and it says this mystery is profound. I say it refers to Christ in the church. Ephesians 5 has the audacity to say this. The purpose of marriage is to be a reflection, to be a picture of Jesus' relationship to his people, the church. But the purpose of marriage ultimately is to be this divine drama that the whole world watches so that the world might gain a better understanding of Jesus' relationship with his church. That's what Paul says is the purpose. So, I don't know if you've ever been to a good play. My personal best theater experience was uh, two years ago. Me and Liza went to Hamilton in Chicago, and it's as amazing as advertised. And so think about what that play does if you've seen it. It puts the facts of history, right, the birth of our nation, these ideas of Hamilton, these things that are true, but I can no longer see them because they happened a long time ago. But, but you watch this play and it puts on visible display the facts and the ideas and the struggle so that you see it. 
And as you're watching it, you experience the joy, the sadness, the betrayal, the heartache, the hope. So much so that there's a standing ovation at the end. Why? Because things that were absolutely true, though invisible to me, on stage became a visible reality. And it moved everybody. See, Paul in Ephesians 5 is saying, yes, marriage is something like that. This true, invisible fact of world history that God has a permanent, loving, enduring relationship with His people, the church. That invisible reality that you can't see with your physical eyes, it is made visible in an earthly marriage between a husband and a wife. That the ultimate purpose of marriage is to teach us to help us see and to know Jesus' relationship with His church, and it confirms the reality to our hearts. That's what it's about. So that really does mean this. When you see a husband that cherishes his wife, takes great delight in her, cares for her, sacrifices for her, brings her joy, that's supposed to lift our eyes and make us go, wow, that is a small picture of how Jesus cherishes, cares for, and delights in his church, in me. When you see a wife respond to the loving care of her husband with delight, with affection, with trust, wanting to bring joy to her husband, it's supposed to lift our eyes and make us say, wow, okay. That's a small taste of how I'm supposed to respond to, as Jesus brought his sacrificial love for me. I'm supposed to receive his love and respond with trust. So let me say one thing by way of application at this first point. That if the purpose of marriage that God has empowered it with and designed it for is this divine drama so that you and I will better see and understand Jesus' relationship with this church, that at least I think means this. That's why marriage easily becomes an idol. And an idol is simply a false god. And a false god is anything created that we look to for security, for uh, identity, for life. We look to that instead of the God who made us. And see, only the love of Jesus and the gospel will bring those things ultimately. Security, life, identity. But see, because the purpose of earthly marriage is to reflect that, the truth is marriage gives a a lot of feelings of the gospel. It really does bring a sense of security and stability and identity because it's a reflection of it. But see, what our sinful hearts do is they take the reflection of the reality and they try to make it the real thing. And so what that looks like is, is many times if you're not married, you're tempted to think, if I can just get married, I'll finally know who I am. Or if I can just get married, I, I, you know, my insecurities will go away. I'll be stable. I'll be satisfied. But it's just not true. Marriage was never made for that. Jesus is for that. Marriage is just made to be, a, to be a reflection of that. But see, Ephesians 5 is saying, of course in marriage, there's going, to be, there's going to be feelings of intimacy and stability and security, but it's not the ultimate thing. And see, my suggestion is because marriage is built for that, that might, mm, that might explain a lot of your dating struggles. Okay? Because if marriage is a drama of Jesus' love for his church, a place where you do feel security and intimacy and joy, and you long for that, and that's appropriate, you try to make dating feel like marriage. Because you want that. 
And dating is not marriage. And to the extent that you try to make dating marriage, it's actually going to be unhealthy. Because it is fundamentally not marriage. So that, whatever, being too physical, that wanting the, the person that you're dating to be more committed, the attempted ownership of the other person, that's what's going on. The idea of marriage and what it is feels so good and secure, you want dating to feel like that. And actually, that's the thing that will destroy your dating relationship. Because it's not what dating is. I'm pro-dating. I'm so pro-dating. I promise. I love talking about uh, the boys that you're into or the girls that you're into. I will encourage it. It's just not marriage. And seeing that will actually free you. So, that's that's the purpose. So, what's the pattern? Well, if you see that the purpose is this divine drama, I think that helps make sense of how uh, the Scriptures call us to live out our roles in marriage. Because if it's a display of Jesus' love for the church, and the church's trust and love of Jesus, that means each person actually has a specific role in the drama. Again, if you ever watch a play, you have to adhere to your specific role, or it messes it up. And so it says that the husband is to play the role of Jesus. To love the wife as Christ loved the church. And the wife is to play the role of the church and submit to and respect the husband as the church uh, submits to and respects Christ. But here's what I want you to think about before we go into that. It It should be shocking how little detail application you get of what actually love and submission should look like. There is no like detailed instruction of how that plays out in a husband and wife's role, uh, in a husband and wife's life. There's nothing about how much each spouse works in and out of the house. There's nothing about who does what. There's just not those things. Why? Because every marriage is different. Each spouse is going to bring to the table different strengths and weaknesses, different personalities, different gifts. There's different cultures. And there's different seasons of life. So you just aren't going to get 37 specific ways that this works out. Because it's just not there. It's two people getting married, figuring out how to play out this divine divine drama uh, in their marriage. Look, I tell you this. If my wife had the skills to be a brain surgeon that would make $2 million, you better believe she's working. Heck yeah. (laughs) Um, Because it just depends on who you are. My wife does work, by the way, but she's not a brain surgeon. Um, so, here's, here's how it falls. First, let's talk about the husband. This is verse 25 through 30, 33. The role of the husband, it says this, that he's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Which, in headship, that language, it is a position of authority. But, what is the model that the headship of this marriage is supposed to follow? Verse 25. Christ the head loved the church by giving himself up for it. Verse 29, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Is there an authority and responsibility to being the head of the marriage? Yes. But it's an authority and responsibility that's to be shaped by Jesus' headship and his love and sacrifice for the church. So how does Jesus' headship look? Jesus uses all of his authority... All of it. To sacrificially serve, cherish, and love his bride. Us. His church. Jesus, like Philippians says that Jesus made himself nothing. He became a human. 
He became poor. He was humiliated. He was rejected. And he went to a cross and he loved me so much that he took my sin and took the wrath of God that was due for me so that I can be made his bride, so that he can cleanse me and make me clean without spot, without wrinkle. Jesus made himself low to lift me up. That's what Jesus' headship looks like. Everything that Jesus did, everything was in submission to his Father, which, by the way, that shows you that submission isn't a bad thing, nor is it less than. Everything Jesus did was in submission to his Heavenly Father and for the sake of his bride, the church. I might have shared this illustration before, but uh, um, in the 1980s, there was this uh, very godly man um, named Robertson McQuilkin. He's the president of Columbia Bible College. Uh, he had taught seminary for a long time, was an amazing pastor, and he was actually in the middle of doing some amazing things for this, uh, for this Bible college, making it a training grounds and seminary. But in 1990, uh, he resigned. And uh, he ended up uh, having a speech to his students about why he was resigning. And here's what he said. My dear wife, Muriel has been uh, failing in mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Bible College, but recently, it's become apparent that Muriel is discontent most of the time when she's away from me and is only content when I'm with her. But it's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror. She fears that she's lost me, and she's full of anger that she cannot get to me. So what is, begun, what is abundantly clear is that she needs me full time. Then he said this. See, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do his part. So, as a man of my word, integrity had something to do with that, but so does fairness. She has cared for me and fully sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. But listen to this. Duty can sound grim and stoic. There's so much more. I love Muriel. It's not that I have to care for, I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. And he left. He left at kind of this esteem of his career and shaping ability of future pastors. And that's it. A husband loving, cherishing, dying to anything that comes between he and the love of his wife. That is a glimmer of Jesus. That is a glimmer of the authority of Jesus. You see, when you're told to be a man, whatever you think that means, it means be like Jesus. Be gentle, be kind, be loving, be forgiving, be patient, be willing to lose for the sake of someone else. That you're going to die to anything that dares to come between you and your spouse's love. Look, I really believe this. There is something... If that is played out in marriage, there is something fundamentally healing to you ladies. Because so much of the world takes from you. It just does. I think being a woman in this world is incredibly hard. I don't know from personal experience. (laughs) I am married to one and I've talked to a lot of y'all. Because the world just says that your value is determined by how attractive you are. uh, by, By your achievements. By your looks. And many of you, you just have deep scars from things done to you, from ways that you've been seen and rejected. And there's a cleansing that happens when a husband sacrifices for you, gives up anything to cherish you, not because what you do for him, 
Not because of how you look, but simply because he loves you. I'm telling you, it heals. But here's the warning, okay? You're going to hear me say again and again. Dating is not marriage. Dating is not marriage. Dating is not marriage. It's primarily friendship. But like any close friendship, and a dating, dating, you know, you hope it grows, you hope it grows in marriage, all that. But a dating relationship, here's what it does. It reveals somebody's character. Just like any deep friendship. So here's the warning. God, uh, girls, if you are dating a guy that has an attitude or behaviors that continually make you feel like you don't matter, that you're not cared for and cherished, Listen to me. Marriage is not going to change that. I promise. That's who he is. And your friends might actually see it better than you. You need to ask people around you. Don't let fear blind you that this might, this, this might be my only shot. And don't let idolatry cover up an unhealthy relationship with Christian-y language where you're just like, well, I've just got to be forgiving and give grace. Yes, But that doesn't mean ignore character and what's unhealthy. That's the warning. So first, the pattern, the the husband is to play the role of Jesus with tender, sacrificial, selfless love. And then second of all, the wife, right? Verse 22 through 24, 33, uh, actually addresses wives first. And his instruction is the wife needs to play the part of the church. To submit to your own husband as the church submits to Christ. All right. This is the part I wasn't looking looking forward to. Submission, charged vocabulary word in our culture. And I would imagine some of you, even as Ephesians 5 was read, um, kind of were in disbelief. Some of you probably can't believe a middle-aged man. Am I middle-aged? What am I? A middle-aged man with a college degree. Granted, it's a marketing degree, which isn't that impressive. But a college degree is actually saying, wives submit to husbands. It's what the text says. But let me say three things. First, I know this can sound empty coming from a man. I own that. But submission has nothing to do with ability, with value, with dignity, or with worth. And the way that you know that is Jesus himself. Jesus is equal in power and glory with God the Father. He is God. Yet everything that he does is in submission to his heavenly Father. So it can't have anything to do with that. And there is not a single Christian that is not called to submit to something. And really the most healthy marriage, right, submitting to one another out of, out of reverence for Christ. We are all trying to live for the other person. Second, this submission command is a command for marriage. There is no command for women to submit to men. It's just not there. And if anybody tries to apply it in that way, they're abusing the Bible. This is particularly for marriage, a wife and a husband, because of the drama that it displays. And it certainly does not apply to a girlfriend and boyfriend. If If any boyfriend tries to say that, run. Okay? You have my permission. Run. It's straight manipulation. Okay? Thirdly, the Bible clearly acknowledges and outlines The evil and the harm that is done when people use their authority to abuse, manipulate, and oppress instead of using it to lovingly serve. Jesus Jesus hates it, okay? He hates it even more than we do. 
Because when anybody uses their, their authority in a marriage to hurt and oppress and abuse, it's such a misrepresentation of Jesus, he hates it. And our, look, our history is, is filled with it. It's awful. It's one of the great things about the Me Too movement is it's exposing that. So those are the first three, I guess, kind of cautions. But after that, what does it mean? Well, he says as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So how does the church submit to Christ? Because that's how wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Think about the real thing. Think about Jesus' relationship with the church. Jesus initiates. Jesus loves first. Jesus sacrifices. Jesus forgives. Jesus does everything in loving sacrifice for his bride, the church. And how do the people of God respond? We respond with joy, with thankfulness, with respect, with admiration, and with trust. Which leads to sacrificial living for Jesus. To honor him. Right? Jesus' great love for me. I'm the bride of Christ. You're the bride of Christ if you trust him. It means that I can trust Christ. And I can finally forget about myself. Because it's just not about me anymore. It's about him. And what you realize is that the role of the service and submission for a woman, it means this. Does it, does it mean you have less ability or less worth? It, you have power. It says, use your power, use your gifts, use your uh, stuff to support and contend for the good of your husband. Be his biggest fan. Be someone who wants to see him succeed, not fail. That will actually enable him in ways beyond that, that he can't even imagine. So, <clears throat> E.V. Hill is uh, he's a pretty famous uh, African, long-time African-American pastor in California. Uh, he died probably a decade ago. Um, but there's a sermon you can actually watch this online his uh, wife Jane died in the 80's from cancer and he preached the eulogy at her funeral it's, it's, it's actually incredible uh, but one of, the, one of the things that he says is this, he tells the story because his wife Jane actually before he married her she came she came from some wealth Okay, her, her parents were uh, the presidents of this university she grew up living on a, on a university campus dining with you know with kind of upper class people. She had everything that she wanted. And then she married, right, in a real sense, a lowly pastor and took on that life. So the story that E.V. Hill says is that early in their marriage, when they didn't have much money, he walked in one night exhausted from work and opened the door and all the lights were out and there were all these candles set up, right, in in this huge dinner sitting on the table. And he thought to himself, all right, I can get behind this, you know. And so he's excited. He walks in to, uh, you know, to clean himself up in the bathroom and he tries to turn on the light and he realizes the lights don't come on. And all of a sudden he hangs his head because he realizes the power's off. Because they've been struggling to pay bills because he hadn't been making enough money and he realized the, the power company finally came and cut off the power. And so instead of being, right, excited, he turns to shame and sadness and he walks out into the den and looks at his wife, Jane, with tears in his eyes and says... They cut the power off, didn't they? And she begins to cry and says, Honey, you work so hard. We just couldn't pay the bills. But here's dinner. And he said at that moment, she she could have ruined him. Right? She never spent her life experiencing what it wasn't like to have power. But instead, what she did is told him she loved how hard she worked. That he worked. And she turned it into a romantic dinner. 
And he just would do anything for her. And see, that's real power. Responding to her husband's love with respect, trust, and appreciation. That's the kind of character, actually, that Jesus is making us all uh, by his love, by his unwavering love. He is making us into people that trust, love, serve, and forgive. And that's what it looks like. It's a glimmer of the way the church is supposed to respond to Christ. So here's the warning, okay? Dating's not marriage. I'm going to keep saying that. It's primarily friendship. But, like any close friendship, somebody's character is revealed. Here's the warning, guys. What really are you attracted to? Honestly. I'm not the one who tries to poo-poo on attraction, as if that's stupid. I'm not the one who says, like, oh, physical beauty doesn't matter. Yes, God made you body and soul. Those things matter. But what I'm saying is, broaden your view of attraction. Because what most of you do is you have a very narrow view of attraction that just has to do with kind of how somebody's physical appearance makes you feel. It's actually pretty narrow and pretty subjective and wasn't even the same thing a hundred years ago. Okay? And you decide that's what I'm going to choose off of. And if that lops off 95% of the room, I'm just going to hope to God the other 5% has some kind of character. I'm telling you, that's foolish. That's foolish. Because real attraction broaden it to include character. Because the thing that you're going to be attracted to in your 10, 20, 30 years of marriage is the thing that's promised to grow, which is character. I'm telling you. It's like Proverbs says, charm is deceitful. It is. Don't be fooled. Sex, look, sex is wonderful. It is. But I'm telling you, it'll fool you. Um, it, it'll... The lust is fooling you. Don't choose off of that. Um, It'll ruin you. Broaden your definition to character uh, and and, and let that attract you. And look, I know even right now as I'm saying that, you're saying, yeah, whatever. I'm 10. I don't know. Just trust me. Um, So those are the roles. Notice this, though. Paul does not ever tell husbands to tell their wife what their role is. He just says, worry about yours. If you ever find a husband that's telling the wife her role of submission, I'm telling you it's messed up. And you never, it's never told that a wife is supposed to, you know, make sure that her husband's loving her. It's just saying you each are responsible for your conduct. And that's what it says. And so together, what the purpose is this, the function of Christian marriage in the world is supposed to do something like this. Sinclair Ferguson says this, that when little ones, children, come along and they're playing with their young friends and somebody asks them, hey, what, you know, what is Jesus like? That child is supposed to be able to say, have you ever seen the way that my dad loves my mom? That's what Jesus is like. Have you ever seen the way that my mom gives herself in happy devotion to my dad? That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's the picture. It's sort of like that. So where's the power, right? I'll end here. Look, when you hear the description of what marriage is, it feels impossible. And it is. No one lives up to this standard. Right? In real marriage, the best wife isn't always joyfully respecting and submitting to. And certainly, I can promise you this, in real life, there is no husband that plays the part of Jesus perfectly. It just doesn't happen. 
So how does this divine drama begin to happen with broken, sinful people? You've got to see the real thing. You've got to know what the reflection is pointing to. See, Ephesians 5, this is, this, I find this surprising and ironic. It actually isn't primarily about earthly marriage. One female author I read, she pointed this out. Ephesians 5, it is more about Christ's relationship with his church than it is about earthly marriage because more than half the words in this whole section deal with Christ and the church. This, I'm telling you, chapter 5 is mainly about Jesus and the church. In the church. Right, did you see this in verse 31? It refers back to the... It quotes from Genesis 2, which is the first marriage when Adam sees his wife Eve and he sings a love song over her. They become one flesh, which means they, they have sex and so much more. They are, they, are, they are one flesh. And Paul looks at that and says, yeah, 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 that's true. That really happened. But you know what that really is about? It's about Christ in the church. That the definition of a Christian, are you read, is you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And I know how deeply personal and united that sounds. And that's the point. Because the, the key of it all is that this passage, it's just not a manual for marriage. It's first and foremost about Jesus' love for his church and it's supposed to overwhelm you with that. Because all the things that you're longing for in earthly marriage, which are good and appropriate, but they're just a taste of what ultimately you get in Jesus. Right? You want intimacy. Everybody wants intimacy. Everybody longs to be deeply known and deeply loved. Because that happens in marriage. It does. But, how do you really know that someone will know all your fears and all your quirkiness and all your sin and will never reject you and will never laugh at you? That only is perfectly found in Jesus. Jesus knows the real you. Jesus knows the sins you haven't even committed. And he went to the cross and was crucified naked, a symbol of shame, taking the things that you're ashamed of. And he keeps moving towards you. And it's only knowing the real thing, the intimacy that's in Jesus that will actually enable you to be vulnerable and trust a broken spouse. If you don't have that intimacy with Jesus, you'll get frustrated. You want security? Of course you do. This idea that no matter what I go through, I just want somebody, whether it's depression or pain or suffering or loneliness, I want someone to always be with me no matter what. If you put that ultimate expectation on your spouse, they can't handle it. But Jesus has promised, promised to never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will walk with you in pain in joy and depression and loneliness. He will even walk with you in and through death. An earthly spouse can't do that. There's nothing, if you're in Christ, that will come along circumstantially or even out of your own heart that will ever cause Jesus to run away. Ever. He's vowed to love you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up love. You want approval and significance? You want to know at the end of the day someone looks at you and really smiles at you? Yes, that can happen in earthly marriage, but it will not satisfy you. I promise. But Jesus... The one who made you. In Christ, he smiles at you. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And see, what that means is whether you're dating, married, or single, it doesn't matter. Ephesians 5 is saying that your soulmate, the one that you were made for, your soulmate is not your boyfriend, it's not your husband, it's not your wife. Your soulmate is in heaven right now. 
And his name is Jesus. And you're united to him with a never stopping, never giving up love. And that frees you. It frees you to finally freely love other people that are broken. It frees you to embrace the role that God's given you. If that's single, to be single. If that's married, to be a husband or a wife. Because I'm one flesh with Jesus. And what you begin to realize is this is a strong, secure, and free wife that can submit to a broken and sinful husband, which we all are. And it's a strong, secure, and free husband that can lay down his work and his strength and his reputation for his sinful and broken wife. That's what it looks like. And so I'll end with this. And I've used this illustration at least once a semester because I can't find a better one when I do. I'll let you know. But the great 19th century hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, uh, who wrote some right, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. She actually was blind. A lot of people don't know this. And so her whole life, right, she never saw anything. Um, and people would always ask her about being blind, and she just kind of shrugged it off. But when she got to the end of her life, someone, someone was asking her about, you know, you're blind, and how's that affected you, and do you regret that? And here's what she said, knowing that she was going to die pretty soon. She said this, I'm so glad I was born blind, because that means the first thing that I'll ever see will be Jesus. And I don't want anything else to cloud my vision of that. And you know what? I promise you, when she died and she opened her eyes and she saw Jesus, I promise she didn't regret one bit all the things that she didn't see on earth. I promise. Look, earthly marriage, it is a good thing. It's a gift, but it's not the real thing. And the day is coming, Christian, where you will embrace Jesus. You will see the tears in his eyes as he delights in you. And you will be satisfied and overwhelmed with His eternal love for you. Because world history begins again with a wedding feast. And I'm telling you, when you see that, you will not regret one day that you were single your whole life, that you were in a crummy marriage, that you were in a great marriage. You will know without a shadow of a doubt, I have not missed out on anything. This is what I got. And that guarantee is the only thing that will free you to live a life of sacrificial love for the kingdom of God, whether you're married or whether you're single. Do you know that kind of love? Do you? It's only found in Jesus. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, in many ways, we are, um, we are like Fanny Crosby. Uh, we, are, we are spiritually blind. Uh, we live by sight, thinking that the only thing that will satisfy me are the things of this world. And Lord, would you give us the eyes of faith uh, to see Jesus. Lord, anytime we talk about marriage or sex or anything, there's always shame that comes up. So would people know and experience you that you're the God who takes away shame, that you're the God who loves to forgive, that you're the God who unites sinners to, him, sinners to himself. And would you do that tonight? And let us take the joy of being married to you. In your son's name I pray.